This is Chase Garbarino, co-founder and CEO of HQO, and this is the Let's Go Show. Pat, thanks so much for joining the the Let's Go Show. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and chat with you, Chase. So you're uh, you're a member of the HQO Client Advisory Board. So we've done uh, we've now hung out in New York and in Miami. So I know all about you. But why don't you tell the audience a little bit about um, you know what you're what you're doing over at Pennybacker um, and maybe a bit about your background and kind of how you how you got to where you are in your career. Yeah. So um, at Pennybacker, I lead our office platform nationwide from the um, asset management, development, redevelopment, and repositioning side. Um, and it, you know, it's it's been kind of a long winding path to get here. Um, I started out out of undergrad. Um, I worked for Deloitte. Um, for about a year in their financial advisory services practice, doing business valuation. And I was working with some great people that were very passionate about finance, right? They, they loved it. They lived and breathed it. They, on their free time, you know, in their free time, they read books about finance theory. And over lunch, they would debate finance theory. And they just, they were into it. That was their passion. And it was not mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, had a buddy that worked at a real estate brokerage shop in St. Louis where I was living at the time, um, called him up and, and said, Hey, you know, want to get into real estate? What can I do? He's like, well, we just got a new guy over here. Let's, let's go. And so, um, got a job doing real estate brokerage. Um, and it was a, you know, pure commission, eat what you kill kind of job. My parents thought I was crazy for leaving a company like Deloitte with, uh, you know, paychecks and, and, um, benefits to go be a real estate broker. Um, but it got me into doing what I love. And so used that. Um, eventually, I, I joined JLL in Los Angeles in their tenant rep group. Uh, so spent a couple of years out there um, doing tenant rep brokerage. Um, moved to Chicago with JLL doing um, in a group of their capital markets group, a little subgroup of their capital markets group called Development and Asset Strategies where we were basically in-house development consultants. And if a client had um, a big, weird or dirty piece of land or site or something that they didn't know what to do with, that wasn't just a traditional office building that, that they could own or lease or manage, they would come to us and say, what do we do with this? Can we develop, is there development potential? How does it work? And so we would take those sites and we would um, do a highest and best use study, we would, um, in some cases, master plan them, and then we would go sell the dream to developers to, to redevelop the site. And I kind of figured out through that process, you know, I was I was just doing exactly that, like planning it and selling the dream. I realized I wanted to be the the person to execute that dream, right? Come up with it on my own and, and go out and do it. So I wanted to get off of the brokerage side and the services and consulting side onto the ownership side. Um, so went back to business school with that goal in mind. Um, and then after business school, joined Tishman Spire in New York in their leadership development program. Spent three years in New York. They moved me back to LA. Spent three and a half years in LA um, leading you know, their Southern California development and asset management group. Um, and then once I realized I didn't want to kind of live in these big coastal gateway markets anymore, um, joined, joined Pennybacker, moved to Denver, um, and so I've been here for the last two and a half years. 
I mean, that's a heck of a progression between Deloitte, JLL, Tishman. Those are some good names. Um, and you've kind of done and touched. I mean, when you think about kind of where you sit as managing director, obviously um, getting kind of that financial foundation at Deloitte had to be helpful. Everything starts at the bottom line and then seeing how, uh, you know, the differences between JLL on the advisory side and obviously selling space and then getting into Tishman, you know, where you're on that front line. That's kind of a pretty unique mix of experience. Yeah, I, I think it's been really helpful. I feel like a lot of asset managers, um, portfolio managers, you know, even, even developers, their background is purely financial, right? Mm -hmm. Purely spreadsheet based. Um, and I, I see that a lot with other asset managers and I, because I've been, um, in the weeds doing leasing, right. Doing the brokerage, doing, um, doing investment sales, doing, you know, working directly with property managers operating on a day-to-day -day basis, a portfolio of office buildings, I feel like I've got a broad range of experiences that's much more than just the, the finance side that allows me to, I think, be more effective because I know how tenants, I know what kind of questions tenants are asking when they tour space or what their expectation is when they go on a tour. Mm -hmm. I know how um, investors who are either buying or selling space, how, how they think about it, what kind of questions they ask, what's important to them. And I know what it takes to operate a building on a day-to-day -day basis from a property management standpoint, um, because I've, I've worked directly with and managed those property managers and, and understand the challenges with living and breathing and, and operating an office building day-to-day. -day. And so um, it's, it's you know, not quite as uh, financial and spreadsheet-based as a lot of other folks, um, but I feel like it gives me a lot more practical knowledge. Um, and then uh, I can... I can rely on uh, other folks on my team who are a lot smarter than me for the, uh, the financial support. Yeah. Well, I, and I think it's a trend. Like I was talking to, you know, probably a top three global, you know, institutional asset manager the other day, and they're try desperately trying to hire people kind of within the practice that have operating experience. Um, and I think it's, it's also interesting to see that they're, they're catching up to hire people with operating experience because, you can always manipulate a spreadsheet to look good, but really pressing on the assumptions, right? Like the major assumptions and levers in that model when you're saying, you know, okay, the probability of renewal, you know, whatever the rollover is over the next two to three years, like if you haven't operated, you can, you can kind of go on historical, you know, uh, data that you have for models, but uh, it certainly seems like kind of a, a key advantage. And I think a lot of the large money managers really are seeing they need some more of that in-house. Well, and it's, it, it helps you having that knowledge and that background helps you make better decisions when you're underwriting an asset, right? So your, your acquisition underwriting should be stronger if you know what it actually takes to, to run the building and lease the building. Right. And then also what you need to be able to do is differentiate between the acquisition pro forma and market conditions and real life. You know, a, a lot of people, they buy a building, they've got their acquisition pro forma and that's their Bible, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to, you know, come hell or high water, they're going to try and live up to that pro forma and markets shift, markets change. And you need to understand that that pro forma was built at a period in time and that should be not your Bible, but that should be a decision-making tool 
that drove that one decision. And then going forward, you just have to make the right decisions for the asset and for your investors based on market conditions and, and based on the specifics of, of what you're seeing and doing with, with the business plan for that asset. So um, getting too attached to a pro forma, I, I don't think is, is helpful. Um, understanding that it's a, it's a decision-making tool and then being able to move forward from it is, uh, is, is how operating these buildings and, and renovating and developing these buildings really works. Yeah, I think we're seeing, you know, and it's obviously everything that we do with you on our, you know, on the cab, similarly in terms of people trying to get closer to really understanding kind of operations and execution, you know, are you starting to see the same thing with technology where it's becoming such an important lever in the business that, um, you know, you've learned every aspect of the business along your career, and now there's this whole new pillar of technology, right? Um so are you really starting to kind of dive in there and, you know, build your skill set? And are you seeing other people kind of do the same across the industry? Yeah. I mean, real estate, commercial real estate and, and office space, um, especially just tends to lag the rest of the, um, the rest of the world when it comes to technology implementation, information sharing, new ideas, new, you know, whatever it is, right? I mean, for years, it was just a, the, the brokers, the top brokers and owners in a market controlled all the information, you know, only did as much as they had to do, only spent as much as they had to, and tenants needed office space. And so they'd come sign a lease for, for 10 years because they needed a place to go. They needed a place to have their law library or whatever, right? And things like... um multifamily, hospitality, all these other industries um, were implementing technology much faster and much better than office buildings ever were. Mm. And I think that's rapidly changing, right? And it, it needs to change. Um, and it, it is finally changing. And I, I do think the best owners and operators are trying to implement technology um, into the core of, of you know, how an office building runs, how you market it, um, how your tenants interact with it, because people have that expectation, right? I mean, they live in apartments and houses and travel to cool places and cool hotels that have all these things built in. Um, you know, I, I I can control my thermostat, my garage door opener, and my lights through um, an app on my phone, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And you could never do that with an office building was was just kind of silly and felt like it was out of touch. And so I think over the last several years, folks have um, recognize that that's a hole in how office buildings operate. Um, and, and people are trying to change that. And, and we certainly are, you know, with, with the help of you guys and, um, and other partners to make office buildings uh, and the tenants experience of that office building from a technology standpoint and a connectivity standpoint on par with other aspects of, of their life. Well, and I would imagine you guys see a pretty good opportunity in terms of where you play in the market to really bring, you know, a smart kind of technology package across whatever kind of key products and themes you guys think most important um, to the repositioning, right? I'm imagining where you're buying that you're kind of getting uh, some opportunities to pretty quickly level up an asset with some you know, your, your kind of key technology stack. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, and, and this is, 
So that question kind of drives to a, a larger trend, I think, in in real estate. Is there's 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 two paths that um, office buildings are going down right now. There's the traditional path. There's commodity office. There's people just need a place to go to work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's back of house operations for companies, which there's a lot, right? There's demand for that. Um, maybe it's just kind of commodity suburban office, but that is that is one path and. Um, that is typically viewed as that office space is typically viewed as overhead for those occupiers, right? The cost center, um, they're trying to be as efficient as possible. Uh, and so, you know, you, you need enough, um, you know, you need a deli where an employee can go buy a turkey sandwich and a cup of coffee and and that kind of thing, but you're not going to go over the top with amenities and, um, and technology because it's overhead, it needs to be efficient. And that's going to kind of be a, we view that as that's going to be a race to the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. The other path is, you know, what was called creative office, what we're calling experiential office, which is the opposite. That is a office that's a tool to attract and retain talent, right? Mm-hmm. And with that comes um, the need for better technology, um, better amenities, better locations, more thoughtful design, better furniture, better um, just better everything because tenants have realized and, and companies have realized that you can work from home and be effective, right? The last 18 months have, have taught us that you can, you can sit at your spare bedroom or your kitchen counter in your pajama pants and get your work. So if people are going to come back to the office and those, those, um, companies that really view office space as a, a tool that helps them grow, uh, and attract the best folks, they need a product, an office building, an office space that that keeps up with that. That employees want to come to, that they find a benefit in, that they um, like and appreciate, and you know, are able to collaborate and learn and and all that stuff, right? And so, um, you need to incorporate technology into that to stay at the forefront of these office owners and developers. Uh, you need to incorporate design, right? You need to really push the envelope, and that's where. I think there's even room to separate there, right? Because the best best owners, uh, the best developers are going to make the best decisions that drive, um, you know, drive innovation in those properties for their tenants, even if it uh, exceeds what they underwrote, right? Going back to your your acquisition pro forma. Yep. Um, If it exceeds what they underwrote, but it... Uh, increases your employee retention or reduces downtime when space rolls over something like you, you can make up those costs if you're making smart decisions. And so that's how we view it, right? We want to make the best design decisions, the best technology decisions, the best decisions for the asset, because we think it ultimately drives value um, for our tenants, for our investors, for everybody. I think, I mean, I think that's pretty clearly too when talking to investors where you're going to find alpha, which is, I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with um, the talent piece. I recent research study came out and said that between, you know, now and 2030, the U S stands to lose over 8 trillion of GDP because of the, there's something like 85 million jobs 
that they're going to have trouble filling. And so when you think of the workplace really as a talent tool, mm-hmm. you know, we very historically, it's kind of been a default. Like you, you know, you assume, yeah, well, we have to have an office and you're, you're kind of making the point that there's now this digital alternative and there's lots of third places and everything where, where people can be, you know, pretty effective. But I think, you know, when you really dig in and what the biggest problem is for the C-suite of employers is this talent problem. So if you can put the work in and kind of reposition assets to really help solve that problem, I mean, that's where you're, I mean, there's, there's an, the amount of money that companies will pay to solve the talent problem, you know, I think is where growth in this industry ultimately lies. And that's where investors are going to get alpha. And I think you're right. Even within experience, like the execution, the people that, that get it right will outperform. You know, yeah. I mean, occupancy expenses for a company are somewhere between, you know, typically uh, what is it, six to eight um, percent of their of their revenues, right? Mm-hmm. But payroll is like sixty to seventy percent, right? It, it's 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 tenfold their occupancy expenses. Yep. And I feel like companies try to um, historically, right? Companies have tried to make decisions to be smart with their occupancy expenses. Like, I'm going to move over to this building because it's $2 a foot cheaper, right? And it saves on that 6 to 8%, but at the expense of that 70%, right, of, which is their payroll. And so they're, they're saving a buck over here, but maybe they're, you know, they're increasing their turnover by 5% a year because they're in an office building that sucks or that's in a terrible location employees don't want to be in. Like, yeah. make a decision that is best for that, you know, your employees, right? That payroll, that 60 to 80%, even if it means paying a little bit more down here, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a much better outcome for you as a, as a company. Yeah. I actually have some, so there's a recent, another study that I was reading in HBR the other day that said, you know, employees who are satisfied with their physical work environments, are 16% more productive, 18% more likely to stay, and pretty staggering, a third, 30% more attracted to their company than competitors. So I think like, as an industry, anything we can do to really start to change the vernacular when you, you, know, I, when you go and talk to kind of the average you know, uh, leasing agent, there's still a lot of per square foot talk rather than what's the vernacular and kind of the the language that we're using to speak to the head of HR, right? And that's so much of really understanding ROI uh, on the talent side, I think, and kind of building that into just your your dialogue and the way that you think about the business is going to be so critical. And it's going to really, there's going to be a dichotomy between the winners and losers kind of coming out of this this cycle. For sure. No, I, I, I've seen it on leasing tours, right? The the head of HR or human capital or, you know, whatever that's called in these companies is is present on these tours, leading a lot of it, you know, for, for the best companies, for the best tenants. They're leading a lot of these decisions because they understand the impact of this on attracting and retaining talent. And and you're exactly right. It's the brokers that fight it. Like, well, this building, you know, over here, they're, they're a buck a foot cheaper. It's like, Fine. That's that's a totally different experience, right? Um, going to that building versus this building that's a dollar or two dollars or five dollars a foot higher, um, and so it, it's you know the best owners uh, and operators and the best tenants are starting to find each other, 
And I think it's a mutually beneficial relationship when they do, right? I, I don't ever want to view myself as sitting on the opposite side of the table from my tenants. Um, and they want one thing and I'm trying to push back. And, and it's this, you know, we're all on opposite sides of the table with, with different interests. In my mind, if our tenants are successful, um, if they like the building, they think it's great, it, it lets them you know, hire and keep the best employees. That's fantastic, right? That's the best news I've heard. So I want to do everything I can to make that possible for them because um, they're going to say great things about my, my building. They're going to expand. They're going to you know, talk about it. It's just it's going to be ultimately making their life better and their employees happier and doing whatever I can to accommodate that is going to come back to me, to my building and benefit my investors, right? And so I think that opposite sides of the table thing, again, it, it goes back to just kind of the old school way of thinking. And I think that's out the window now for the best owners and operators. And so, you know, the best owners and operators and the best tenants are finding each other and realizing that, hey, you know, we're going to be in a partnership for the next five, seven, 10 years. Mm -hmm. Let's find a way to, to make this work for everybody and be successful for everybody. Yeah. And I mean, you kind of touch on what I think is a key theme, which is this concept of customer success for the tenant in terms of attracting, engaging, retaining people. So how do you guys think about, um, you know, approaching and particularly how technology plays into this, approaching the customer with quantifiable data on that, right? Because so much of, you know, the last however many decades of real estate has been relatively anecdotal. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, there's a proliferation of tools and all of these things. But how do you guys view, you know, starting to quantify success and kind of prove that that ROI and impact that you guys are having? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great question, right? I mean, data, Pennybacker is, is big on data and making decisions with data, not, you know, anecdotal evidence or rules of thumb or um, just, you know, historical, you know, whatever drove historical decision making. Now, sometimes you kind of have to rely on that in the interim until you can really quantify something, but, but we're big on that. And so anything we can put data around to help drive our decision making um, helps us. And things like, you know, having technology in a building that helps us measure um, different aspects that we can then go report to, whether it's our investors, our tenants, you know, our property managers and engineers to just make us smarter and better um, is is important, right? And so if we can have, um, right, we've got the HQO app and, and people can book amenities through it or whatever. We've got occupancy sensors in buildings. We can see, okay, we built this big fitness center in this building. Um, looks great on a tour, right? Mm -hmm. How many people use it, right? How many people are, are booking it or scanning in or whatever versus how many people are using the, you know, booking the conference center or booking little small meeting rooms or, or booking any other amenities or, or, or spaces or ordering food through the app or whatever it is. We've got quantifiable data on what people are actually using, right? Um, and then through that, we can see what's important to them. Um, and same thing on the, on the operations side, on the ESG side, that kind of thing, right? We're, we're installing sensors throughout the building that are um, tracking our energy usage they're allowing us to understand, okay, based on, on, you know, weather patterns outside, based on occupancy trends, right? Because things, things move and shift throughout the week. Here's when you need to run the HVAC system. Here's when you need to start it up. Here's the optimal time to do that, 
right? Or here's here's air quality inside the building, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and here's air quality at 8 a.m. versus noon versus 3 p.m. compared to outside, right? Like any of those data points you can get, um, you you know that that you can quantify it just leads to better decision making, right? And so the uh, again the old school way of just this is a rule of thumb. This is how you design an HVAC system. This is when you turn it on. This is how you operate the building just based on, I, I, I don't know, right? Just mm-hmm. whatever somebody designed 30 years ago is, is out the window. Yeah. Having data and, and you know having actual measurable inputs makes you a better owner. It makes you, uh, lets you have amenities and services and offerings that are actually important to the tenants, not just things that look good on a tour. Um, and also it just, it lets you, you can show the tenants. People are like, show me, right? How, how's that work? You've got the data because here it is, right? Here's what people are using. Here's what people are doing. Here's why we did this. Mm-hmm. And are you seeing kind of the market getting smart, both on the tenant side and on the investor side, where they're starting to kind of look for that data and indication of success where, you know, repositioning or whatever the strategy is that the asset is working on kind of that next level down from the rent roll kind of metrics. You know, are you seeing any advancement in terms of the sophistication on either side? So on the tenant side, it kind of depends on the the size of the tenant, right? Yeah. Big tenants that have real estate departments that this is what they do all day long. They have real estate professionals that um, go in, work with building owners, uh, audit operating expenses, want to understand this stuff, want you know, want to understand how to maximize their um, efficiency, their employees' happiness, their whatever it is, and they're very very sophisticated. And then. There's a lot of folks that, you know, a lot of companies that are in 2,000, 5,000, 8,000 square foot spaces or, or spec suites that we built out that just like they have a business. They want to run their business. Um, they don't like they want to be able to take advantage of great stuff in the building, but they are not. And I don't mean to say this negatively, but from a real estate standpoint, they're not dialed in or sophisticated enough to kind of want to dig into that. Yeah, sure. They're just like, I need a great building that I can go to and work and my employees are happy. in. Um, and actually with the way Pennybacker works, we're, um, you know, we're, we're starting to raise some big funds and, and, you know, become pretty big, but the bread and butter of what we do on the office side are kind of small to medium sized buildings, right? So mm-hmm. 75,000 to 200,000 square foot buildings that have a lot of those smaller tenants. So we certainly have some tenants that are big, sophisticated, have those real estate departments, but we also have a lot of 2,500 and 5,000 square foot tenants that aren't that, that um, we want to take care of and offer that same stuff. And if they ever want to come to us and talk about it, we're happy to. And sometimes, you know, we'll go out and just, and proactively explain it to them, meet with them, you know, have these discussions, share that data with them. Um, Sometimes they care and sometimes they just don't. They're like, I'm busy doing what I do. (laughs) We're happy here. Leave us alone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I know we're coming up on time. So last, last one, I'll ask you in terms of looking ahead to 2022, um, what's kind of the major, major trend, uh, that, that kind of is top of mind for you for the next year, you know, the last two years have been unlike, I think any we've probably operated in. Um, so what, what's the, the number one thing on your mind heading into 2022? Getting people back in the office, right? Um, just it, it's 
it's hit and miss if people are there or not. If people are signing leases, a lot of tenants are signing, you know, six month, 12 month renewals. Mm-hmm. So just getting leasing activity back up, getting people back in the office every, you know, throughout since COVID started, I've made, I don't know, probably five or six different predictions for like, Oh, people will be back after 4th of July, after Labor Day, they're definitely going to be back. Right. And I've been wrong every time. Yeah. Um, but I've started to, and especially in the last two to three weeks, started to see a pretty big uptick in leasing activity across my markets. Mm. Um, an increase in tours, an increase in signed LOIs. I think and I hope tenants are finally looking towards first quarter, maybe early second quarter to start to get most of their employees back occupying their space. And so that's what I want to happen, not just because I want to sign leases, which I definitely do, but part of, I think, uh, owning and operating a great office building is creating a community, having this programming, right? Having things going on at the building um, that, that make those employees happy, make them productive, make them smarter, help them learn, you know, help them network with other folks outside of their own company. And it's hard to do when your building's 11% occupied, right? Mm-hmm. Once people are back, we can incorporate more of that programming. We can, we can get more measurable data because more people are booking things, right? So I think just getting people back is important. Um, and, you know, I honestly, one, one thing we haven't hit on that I'm sure you, you've, you know, hit on in other, uh, other discussions and other podcasts is um, people talk about, you know, the death of office. Nobody's ever coming back to the office, that whole thing. I, I think that's very overblown. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at what Facebook is doing, what Amazon's doing what Apple's doing, not what they're saying, but what, how they're spending their money. Follow the money. <laughs> it, exactly, right? They're saying like, oh, our employees can work from home indefinitely. At the same time, they're going out and signing record leases, buying buildings, taking down millions and millions of square feet across the country um, with plans for future in-person occupancy, right? And so those companies are planning for that. And actually, we've done a lot of research, you know, independent research with a guy named uh, Jason Dorsey at the Center for Generational Kinetics. Hmm. We went out and, and did a lot of research, like what do people think about occupying space, Gen Z and millennials? And the majority of Gen Z and millennials want to be back in the office at least three days a week, plan to be back in the office regularly, you know, do not do not want to work from home because they realize how restrictive it is, how how much learning they're missing out on that kind of thing. So the big smart occupiers are planning for it and the employees want it, right? Maybe it's not to the extent it was, maybe it's not five days a week, but everybody wants that. And so um, I think that's going to happen. And as that happens, you know, it just gives us more tools and more data to be smarter, to be better uh, and to create these great communities where our tenants can thrive. Yeah, I could not agree more with that where I, you know, I think there is much bigger purpose in terms of kind of the communities you guys create and bringing people together, right? It's not even just the direct economic success and productivity enhancement for one company, but it's the ramification on the small businesses and local community and things like that, that certainly is a part of kind of why we do what we do and some of the mission. And I think your point on, you know, we talk about this a lot and we certainly have talked about it on other podcasts, which is follow the money. There's the press and the headlines. Uh, and even when you look at the number on the great resignation, like mm-hmm. we're still waiting for the great part of it. Yeah. You know, there's certainly job switching and things like that. But when you look at the workforce numbers, most of the people that are dropping out, um, 
tend to be early retirement, so they're close to it anyway. So I think some of it's overblown due to the whole social media and media kind of news media ecosystem we have. Um, but I also think when you when you think of the purpose on why some companies, I won't say all, but why some companies are kind of pushing the um, the remote narrative, you know, I think uh, the bell curve and the average company is just saying, Hey, we want to be cautious on spooking employees. And, you know, we don't, we don't want this great exodus. I think there are a number that are, uh, frankly, it's a little bit more, I wouldn't say sinister, but, um, it's kind of like the great filtering where if you can move a job, pay doesn't go up. Talk to auto workers in Detroit, talk to the manufacturers in Pittsburgh, like anytime, you know, management and capital can move a unit of labor, it doesn't usually come with a pay increase. Right. It's seeking out more efficient labor markets, number one. Mm -hmm. And we've certainly talked to a lot of big tenants that are just saying, we think we can get same productivity and skill set for 80 cents on the dollar somewhere else. So we let some people work remote and then we cost down. Um, and I think it's also, and, you know, particularly when I'm talking to people early in their careers, you know, I do think that some companies use it as a, you know, there's the skill versus will graph where certainly you want to assess people on skill, but there's also a will component, right? Yeah. And do you want to be a part of the team? Do you want to, you know, show up? Are you, are you there at work for some of the right reasons? And I don't think Monday through Friday, nine to five, which was created by Henry Ford, you know, over a hundred years ago. I don't think that that's necessarily the equation, but wanting to be a part of a team, you know, certainly correlates with showing up in life. So I think, I think that's a part of it as well. Absolutely. No, I, I yeah. couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, Pat, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Glad we finally got you on and, uh, hope you close out the year well and, uh, looking forward to hopefully running, running into you in person, uh, in 2022. Absolutely. No, thanks so much, Chase. This was great. Um, enjoy the holidays and yeah, I'll see you, uh, I'm sure in the spring. For more information about how HQO can help you connect with your workforce and make smarter CapEx decisions and drive more NOI, visit us at hqo.com. This is Chase Garbarino. Thanks for tuning in. Let's go.